Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Campaign 2024 has begun. We are now on the clock, everybody. We are on the clock. Iowa is in the review mirror. Super Tuesday is coming up in early March, guys. The time has come. Let's get involved. Get involved in your communities, in your towns. Go to jointheunion.us, find any number of the hundred plus partner organizations we have and get involved in your community and make sure that we get every last pro-democracy voter to the polls in November that we can. I want to say thank you and on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by veteran political reporter Tom Lobianco, the author of the 24 site Substack newsletter. In two decades of reporting, Tom spent eight years covering Donald Trump, 12 years covering Mike Pence, with tours from the campaign trail to the White House and all points in between. Prior to 24 site, he covered politics for The Messenger, Yahoo News, Business Insider, CNN, and the Associated Press. He is also the author of the 2019 Mike Pence biography, Piety and Power, available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Manchester, New Hampshire, right off the heels of the primary there last night. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Reed. Thanks for having me. All right. So it is, as we're recording this, 8.35 a.m. Eastern time, the day after the New Hampshire primary. Donald Trump wins by 12, beats Nikki Haley. You know, I don't think it's any surprise that, you know, he's on his way to the Republican nomination. Nikki Haley was not quite defiant in defeat but certainly said she's going to continue moving on. And Trump was defiant in victory. So give us the tales from the ground. Yeah, uh, it feels like the zombie primary continues. I don't, I'm not sure how long, possibly sometime before South Carolina. That was really interesting. You know, a lot of my focus up here in a lot of our, the political media industrial complex focus was really on what would be the margin of victory. For Trump here, you know, would he, you know, land that knockout punch in the primary, or would Haley get it close enough within single digits to, you know, really call it a victory? And you you hear people talk about these things in the moment. You hear stuff like complaints about the projections in Iowa, the race being called before, you know, uh, well, people are still voting in caucus. A lot of that has to do with the expectations game. Obviously, it's it's central. To presidential politics. But I think I tend to step back and take an even broader view of it and look at where the Republican Party is, because this was supposed to be, or this is supposed to be, a party unilaterally controlled by Trump. And it was pre-January 6th, not that long ago, where it really was. And, you know, as much of that was a result of him controlling the White House as anything. But just, you know, if you hop in a time machine Back to the heady days of uh, November 2020 when Rudy Giuliani was still a joke and uh, before the hair dye started tripping down and before we had an insurrection at the Capitol. And tell anybody 
that Trump does not have unilateral control over the Republican Party. Now, that would be stunning. But again, is it enough for Nikki Haley to actually win a nomination? And that appears to be no. We're stuck in this middle ground right now. Actually, I wrote on my notes here, the expectations game, Tom, because again, you're right. You know, the Trump campaign, as you know, on any campaign in a contest, you're trying to, you know, tamp down expectations and then exceed them. Right. It also happens in debate settings. Look, we're just trying to go out and make our message, yada, yada, yada. We're up against a very stiff competition. Then you score a few points. You go, look at what a great job our person did. Right. And (laughs) so, you know, you can make an argument to your point about the quote unquote control of the party. And I think it's important that we make a distinction here between the control of the party and sway over voters, because I think it's an important distinction. Trump clearly thought that he was going to win by more or should have won by more. And that Haley had audacity in even saying I did better or I made enough of a move here that I should continue. And so he goes into not one of let's now bring us all together, right, as Republicans, Reagan's 11th commandment, but she's wearing a cheap dress. The opposition research is going to start dropping on her. She's not very smart. All the other things, which, frankly, as someone like me and like you, who's been watching him as long as we have, like none of that was a surprise in particular. (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, Trump is Trump, as they say. And he kind of undercut himself there, but he also gave it away, right? I mean, he gave away what the expectation was. I mean, stunning to see that, you know, a guy just, what, eight days ago in Iowa said it's time to wrap things up. And, you know, granted, he has been saying that for months without effect. Although I would argue the effect really kicked in. Mm, so I'm reconsidering this here. The effect did kick in after Iowa. You know, you got the cavalcade of endorsements. You had the sad, sad, sad campaign of Ron DeSantis finally with her with a video at the end and uh, some really big promises after dropping out. Tim Scott's out, gets engaged, supplicates before Trump at the victory speech uh, there. Can we just stop there for a second, Tom? So what Tom is referring to, everyone, is it, it Trump's, I guess, victory speech last night. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who Nikki Haley appointed to his seat, let's be clear, when she was governor of South Carolina. Trump turns back and says, wow, you really must hate her, referring to Nikki Haley to have endorsed me, to which Scott sort of sheepishly goes, I just love you. And, you know, I wasn't surprised by it, right? You know, Tom is two people who probably spend entirely too much time looking at political social media. Everybody's like, you know, can you believe it? Can you believe it? What the you know, he's pathetic? Like, yes, you can absolutely believe it. Like none of this was a surprise. And let's also be clear that Trump has never not taken an opportunity to make someone feel worse about a decision they should feel bad about. <laughs> uh, Tim Scott, you know. There was a moment where people thought maybe he had a chance. But, you know, again, this is like this is where the party is and there's no going back. Trump, what it looked like last night is it sounded like the guy who was in the White House. That's how he sounded. And when you look at people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott up there on stage with him, Clearly not DeSantis, which could turn out to be pretty interesting as this develops. Clearly, they're looking for something out of a potential Trump administration. They're looking for support from his base. They're looking for the magic 
political word here, relevance. And he kind of gives it to him. But man, you know, the backhanded and the way that Scott announced his engagement after that, too. This is where, Tom, to the extent that you and I occupy any space in the real world, as you as you cross from where we live to what we what I believe is some semblance of reality, as you step through that reality distortion field, right? Like this all makes sense in the context of MAGA. Vivek Ramaswamy wants. Look, you're right. Like. He never expected he'd be here, right? He probably sees himself as an heir to like the the fu, you know, sort of mantra. Scott, you know, he he's like, all right, well, I'm all in. I might as well be on the stage with him. But again, it, you know, this is the other thing too. Is is someone who you have covered Trump, Pence, their White House? They're so incredibly weird too. There's such a strange collection of people that only an authoritarian movement would allow to rise through the ranks because no normal functioning human coalition would have anything to do with most of these people. You know, you remember, right? The, the back in 16, the, the Trump folks used to call themselves the Island of Misfit Toys. And you still kind of got that. This current iteration, by the way, is very much establishment, I should note, right? This is Susie Wiles co-chair, Chris LaCivita, a veteran of Republican contests. He has been around for forever. Right. Which I always remind people, he is the swift boat guy. So do not underestimate Chris's ability to do bad things. Yes. And he's great at working us in the press. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, as is Trump, by the way. Trump is a master at working the press. I feel like that doesn't get out there enough. He's just really good. Look, but I think if for someone who, who watches this stuff and, and reads all the coverage, again, probably spending too much time on it, if you're paying attention, it absolutely comes through. There was somebody from, I don't know, it wasn't Trump himself, but a reporter on one of the cable networks was asking somebody about Trump's moderating stance on abortion. And I, actually, it was a Democrat who was answering the question. I'm sorry, I got myself confused. And the person's like, what do you mean moderating stance on abortion? He's the guy who goes out and says, I killed Roe. I killed Roe. What are you talking about? Right. But like you got lots of out there going, you know, he's really not as bad on abortion as you all say. Right. And everyone's like, you know what, Chris, you're right. Maybe you're right, because we all know that he doesn't really care. But he goes out and says it anyway. And, and as I said on the air last night, like, you know what? If my Democratic friends are smart, they'll take when he says I killed Roe or I created the Supreme Court and they'll run it 187 billion times into the suburbs. Right. Like this is where. Again, the press, not surprisingly, no offense, I call it media training, right? You guys live inside the reality distortion field, too. It's one of your own making. And then when that Venn diagram between you guys and Trump comes together, it's like, what the hell are y'all talking about? No offense, of course. <laughs> the MAGA celebrity world, right? I mean, you know, we write about things like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates as though they are the, the be all end all. Well, the second coming of Trump, as it were, eventually. But you know, the thing I was hearing from a Trump folks last night, and this goes to his speech where he really undercuts himself by attacking Haley. You know, if he had given the speech he gave in Iowa, I think there might be a better claim to him saying the, the primary is over. But instead, he gives a speech, you know, setting her up as the opponent, keeping her up as the opponent, attacking her, promising more attacks. And that was because they didn't perform as well as expected. In New Hampshire, in any normal circumstance, 12 points would be a blowout. This is clearly not a normal circumstance. 
he's kind of like a semi-incumbent here. You know, it's a very weird dynamic. And remember, the polling, too, had him gaining, you know, with DeSantis dropping out his nut, he was breaking away from Haley. So, it, you know, there was a lot of, I heard a lot of frustration from Trump sources yesterday, current and veterans of uh, Trump's previous campaigns. And I think you saw that reflected in his anger in that speech. I mean, look, all politics and all campaigns have backbiting. The people who were there before saying, well, if I was there, this would have been different. The differences in Trump world is that the knives are out all the time for everyone. And as I've said before, Tom, as you know, probably up close, the only people they hate more than me are each other. Right. Like, so it's always this backbiting. So right now, you know, somewhere between, you know, New York City and Mar-a-Lago, there's a lot of people texting Trump, calling Trump. And this is the other part, too, Tom, as you know, which is so unusual is that he answers these calls. He answers these texts. And this is what we've seen since the beginning is to your point about it not being a normal campaign. This is one of those things we always have to remind ourselves of. His campaign starts and ends with him. Let's say that it was the flip side, which is Joe Biden was in the position of Trump and he won by 12. And people, first of all, I doubt like even if Joe Biden had a cell phone, somebody's holding it for him. But my point is like because he's the president, right? He's not holding his own cell phone, whereas Trump walks around with it in his pocket. So every foreign intelligence service knows where he is and is probably listening in on his conversations. But he answers these things individually and responds to them individually and then goes on truth social. So it's like. Everything that happens, he's the head of the snake and the rest of the snake has to respond to it because, again, it's all about him. There's no without him. There's no there, if that makes sense. Yes, right. This third iteration of the campaign is fascinating for its, its bifurcation, the split personality of the campaign. You know, the establishment is handling operations. Trump is directing it. And on the phone with Lewandowski. Is uh, talking with Roger Stone. Jared's lurking. Jared is in the wings. And it's, you know, that old saw about, you know, do you let Trump be Trump? I mean, all the things that we used to hear about in 16 when he was in the White House. And, I, you know, we kind of got that answer here. And, you know, letting him be him results in a professional campaign with a former president tweeting threats, or I'm sorry, tweeting that truth, whatever the, whatever the hell that is, <laughs> that one. Right. It's functionally the same thing. Yeah. He's, he's writing, you know, this is the way I think about it as a reporter or somebody, you know, you know, came up with, you know, press releases and, you know, faxes and whatnot. I hate writing, tweeting, and posted on social media and all that. That guy was the president. He's the current front runner for the nomination again. He could be the president again. He might not leave if he gets back in. All these things are possibilities. It's not a tweet. It's a statement. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Like you you print them out, you put a ream of them in the Donald Trump presidential library, you know, whatever, on the Fifth Avenue. These are things of import. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. 
Modern management made simple. Let's talk a little bit about the numbers here. So we saw in Iowa that, you know, he crossed 50%, Haley and DeSantis picking up the, the lion's share of the, the rest. And this time again, he, he crosses 50% and Haley again gets the balance of the rest. But, you know, in looking at some of the, you know, the exit polling from last night, Tom, this is where, again, I think that there's a time bomb inside Trump's coalition, such as it is, which is 29% of people who said they voted for Haley identified as conservatives. That's a massive red flag for the Trump campaign. And I'm wondering, to your point about the Las Vitas and the Susies of the world is like they're always going to be, you know, all sorts of bravado because that's the expectation. But as they're sitting there looking at the numbers, right, I think in Iowa and New Hampshire, which are both, you know, very, very white by ethnicity, but very different by temperament and by ideology, right? A conservative in Iowa is powered by God. A conservative in New Hampshire is powered by live free or die, right? They're almost 180 degrees apart, right? They see the world very differently. So 30% of self-identified conservatives go to Haley. Like Trump can't afford that. It's a long way of saying like, it does not appear to me that Trump has yet done the one thing that would in fact make him a truly viable general election candidate, which is he has not consolidated his own party. 100%. I noticed early in the race that they were doing coalition work. They were building coalitions, especially when they went to work early on the evangelicals. You know, remember that, uh, that Ralph, you know, I mean, there's, you know, a thousand of these conferences. Um, I mean, there's probably like five a day. Um, and, they, and they all seem to sell well. It's amazing. I know. It's really, it, I mean, I just finished The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart. And I'll tell you this just as an aside, because I know you've, you've written about this world too. The number of groups, is staggering. The number of people, it's like 12 or 15, almost all men, like who run all of this stuff. And it, there's a Leonard Leos and then a whole passel of people you've never heard of. It's an incredibly, you know, I mean, they're everywhere, Tom, but I'm sorry, go ahead on the coalition piece. I don't want to fall too far down the rabbit hole, but you know, there was a moment where it seemed like evangelicals were, if they weren't entirely with Trump, you know, they might even break away from Trump. Back at the beginning of the year, I mean, this is the heady days of after 2022 when, you know, you had Republicans talking about how much they did not like losing. And of course, that vanished once Ron DeSantis became a person and, you know, stepped off the off air and onto the trail. But I about fell out of my chair when John Hagee introduced Nikki Haley. You know, he's like the second coming of Falwell and Robertson. You know, it's like kind of that's like a second or third gen um, televangelist, uh, Robert Jeffress. You know, remember Robert Jeffress did not fall in line behind Trump either. But one big tell was that Faith and Freedom Coalition meeting, in, I feel like it was June or July of last year, where Ralph Reed gave Donald Trump just primo space. You know, I think they put Ron DeSantis on a Friday afternoon, lunchtime, and Trump headlined the dinner on Saturday night. And there's Mike Huckabee up on stage with him. There's Ralph Reed, you know, all the brass of the politicized evangelical movement. And I think we got the clear answer for why in out of Iowa, which is that it's the evangelicals are with Trump. They weren't eight years ago. It changed. And that's kind of, that kind of speaks to how profound the Republican Party has changed in eight years with him, especially with the cultural evangelicals. But the irony here is that fast forward to New Hampshire, which is what he needed to win and started his winning streak in 2016, it's been inverted. 
now where you have the, a lot of those independents aren't with Trump anymore. The new people they brought in, the dynamic is flipped coming out of New Hampshire. And to the broader point of what you're saying here with the general, this has always been the concern. You know, remember, I, you know, I wrote about this in the book. The reason that Wrights Priebus and Paul Manafort pushed Mike Pence so heavily for the ticket was it was a turnout. It was voter turnout. They were worried that the Midwest evangelicals were going to stay home and it would turn into a bloodbath for all the Republicans. And so you need, and this, and this builds into this bigger discussion that we're seeing growing and which Trump is pushing very hard about the beef stakes. What do you add? And this is how I look at it going forward. Who do you add to the ticket that fixes this, that brings back or maybe ever brings in suburbanites and old line conservatives? Because the, the old line conservatives, kind of the ideological conservatives, not really the cultural, they're just not with Trump. Yeah. And let me ask you that, because I was thinking about that last night as someone who came up in the Republican Party, worked for George W. Bush in 97, 98, 99, 2000, you know, you name it. The first really like seven years of my career going back to college is I wonder if for those kinds of Republicans, let's call it those Bush Republicans, whether it's 41 or 43, that Nikki reminds them of what they used to have. Right. She's not perfect, but it's a reminder of a time was like that was a party I could be a part of. And then they have to look at Trump and say, and now that's what I have. And I got to be honest with you, Tom, I think, again, going back to the weakness, and I think it is a weakness in Trump's coalition is, yes, you may have more evangelicals, although I do think it might be less than it was. I think you do have a lot less, for lack of a better way to put it, moderate Republicans and conservative leaning independents who really want anything more to do with them. It's not to say that they're Democrats or even that they like Joe Biden. They're just like, I can't do this anymore. That's what I want. That's what I used to have. And I know I'm not going to get it back if this guy hangs around. Yes, that's what I saw in Bedford to the west of Manchester. So that, that was the big district that Haley really needed to overperform. And that's where she spent the morning, Tuesday morning, glad handing with the Chris Sununu over there. And that's what I heard from folks as they were leaving. You know, kind of the, you know, it was this middle of the road, middle class. I talked with a former church secretary who was telling me, you know, she and her husband have been voting religiously, uh, you know, for years, pardon the pun. Um, they, they show up, right? And she said, and she was despondent. She was saying, I can't, I'm not going to vote for either one of them. And I heard that from a guy who used to be a baseball coach. He was in the, the Red Sox organization for a hot minute. The older folks. And then you go down to Nashua and you see the Trump coalition. And uh, the Trump coalition is, is a little more blue collar, but they're already with them. And it, how do you bring that back? And, it, you know, again, this goes to the beef stakes calculations. I mean, one way you bring it back or you try to bring it back is what you see the campaign doing, which is trying to put a normalizing face on Trump or at least present the, the, the operation writ large as normal. Let me ask you this, because if you believe, you know, look, we're inundated with polls, right? We're inundated with surveys. We're inundated with data. We're inundated with information. And what you hear from so many Americans is a great unease about their present and about their future. Although you, you saw in Axios last week a report that, you know, people are now starting to suddenly feel a lot better about the economy. But there's still this general sort of unease, which isn't really surprising given that, you know, we're only four years away almost, Tom, from, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. We're in massive social 
technological, economic upheaval, right? We've got wars going on, everything. So like some unease is not surprising. But if you're looking for a calming influence, Trump is going out every day and every night saying, I ain't going to be it. And so, you know, for people who are, you know, emotionally, intellectually exhausted by everything, right? They're like, is this really, this is what I'm going to do again? I want to do this because again, he tells you exactly what he wants to do, right? And it's not like peace, prosperity, milk and honey. Joe Biden's a good guy. Like I want to take the country into a bright future. It's like national abortion bans, Muslim deportation, you know, putting homeless people in camps, radical reorganization of the bureaucracy, you know, evangelicals in places of power. Like this is not where quote unquote normal America is anymore. And to your point about the Trump coalition, you know, it's older, whiter, more male than it used to be, but the country is less of all of those things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It feels like a, uh, like a demographic collision course. You know, you can kind of see this, uh, and you can see the, you know, you see the anger rising there too with, um, the closer you get to that, uh, that demographic deadline, um, sort of written about where, you know, the U S is no longer a majority quote, you know, quote unquote white country, you know, 2040, whenever that happens, you know, a couple thoughts. One, I noticed, you know, the campaign trying to keep the reins on it and you, and you really can't because it's so, this is so cultural, you know, as in Iowa last year and, um, is one of his, his, uh, things in Sioux City. And you can't really call it a rally because they packed 100 people into a small room in a convention center, which is like astounding that it was so few people. Well, and you know, and as an old advanced man right there, they're like closing in the bike rack and putting up drapes and everything else. So, right, like you can't see anything, right? On, t- in t- on television, nothing prints but him, right? <laughs> yes. Which is, by the way, great advance work. You know, Dean Phillips should invest. Oh, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> This guy shows up to the campaign, Super Trumper. Uh, he's got a copy of his, like, you know, March 91 Playboy with Trump and uh, Marla Maples on the front. Oh, Jesus. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, great condition, too. It's in, it very solid condition. And uh, he was complaining afterwards. He said, man, I really wanted to get my photo with him. I wanted to get this signed. But they made me take off my shirt and put on a new one. I was like, well, why? He said, oh, because the, the last shirt said, F- Joe Biden. Right. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. You like, dude, you are the energy. You're not allowed to say F- Joe Biden at a Trump rally. Weird. But Tom, this is to me the inevitable catch 22 as I see it. And of course, everything will change. But as I see it in this moment is that everything that the Chris Lasavitas and Susie Wiles of the world need to do to normalize Trump necessarily pushes away guys like that, which is He's not new anymore, right? He's older, and I want to get to that in a second. But then everything they need to do to get that guy back necessarily pushes away the otherwise normal human beings. It's always like, you know, you're hanging out with the same crew that thinks like the Camp Auschwitz guy is like a good person, right? Like, is that what you want? And I think there's a lot of people are like, no, that's not what I want. You know, it's like the Dobbs decision on abortion is the bumper that Republican dogs can't stop catching. They can't live with it and they can't live without it. Trump can't live with it, can't live without it. But I believe, and you've seen him up close, frankly, more than I have, is instinctually he always wants to go back to the base because he knows they're the most loyal. So you talk about the veep stakes, which is it would make sense even in the context of a quote unquote contested campaign, which this really hasn't been, that Nikki Haley would make the most sense. 
But there's no possible way in my world, in my mind, in the universe in which we occupy, that he'll ever choose her. He can't because of who he is. Yeah. It's, it's too personal for him. I mean, remember that Kamala Harris rabbit punched Joe Biden, I think, in the first or second Democratic debate, like on race right out of the chute. And he bit his lip and he chose her. Right. Trump doesn't have that gene. No, you got to have somebody. This is, uh, you know, I wrote a, uh, about this in my list I put out and I'll, I'll update it again soon, seeing as we are even deeper into the beef stakes now. You know, you kind of saw these tryouts up here in New Hampshire, at least Stefanik. Too smart. Is that, does that apply? Yes, because I think that there's a whole bunch of different reasons why it won't be her. But I think most importantly is, first of all, if she's the VP nominee, she will want to have some modicum of control over strategy and everything else. She just can't help herself. And so my guess is, is that like the Susie's and the Las Vitas of the world are like, can't be her. And New York doesn't get him anything. Right. At the end of the day, there's a couple of things you got to hand. Uh, the, the factors are uh, Trump's personality and does it add. And, you know, when I hear people talk about Tim Scott's I understand that. That's a critical endorsement in the right moment. Um, but as we all know, having watched Trump for eight years now, you, you know, you can do whatever is the perfect thing in the moment for him. And it does not translate uh, transactionally later. You know, it's, it's gone in a minute. Tim Scott, I'm not sure, adds anybody. You certainly don't need the South. The age uh, balance doesn't really work, certainly not the gender balance. Do you get uh, black voters out of that? Maybe. Do you eat into the margins? Possibly. But I keep on hearing women. You know, Christy Noem's name comes up a lot. You know who's interesting and who I hear independently? I've heard from a number of different corners. And just since we both live in the uh, the, the fog-filled world of politics, the you know, one of the best ways to check these things is, does something come up unprompted? And can you, are you certain that these people are not in the same network? You know, like, for instance, if you were talking to Trump people who co-authored a book together and you talk to one of them and they tell you something, you talk to the other one and they tell you the same thing, you don't really have two sources. You just got one. Um, ben Carson's name keeps coming up. Huh. Yes. That was my reaction. First time I heard that, I was like, really? Well, look, I mean, Ben Carson, before all of this, right, was a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon, but he doesn't give you, first of all, he doesn't give you, well, he's not a woman, obviously, but also he's not young either. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, it was explained to me once that, about him helping with evangelicals and, um, you know, obviously he was out on the trail for Trump for, you know, a ton out in Iowa. So that could be a dated thing, but I was hearing it again after uh, after Iowa, uh, which was really bizarre. Right, because, I mean, we know that despite, again, that sort of strikes against my my intelligence thing, but also, you know, total supplication is also necessary, right? Yes, yes, that. I mean, if you think about it, Mike Pence really was the perfect vice president for Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, who else is going to take the water bottle off the table immediately in, you know, in, in sync with him? You know, I was <laughs> I was at a rally in the South Carolina, actually the Tim Scott launch, uh, fittingly enough. It was up, there, up in the crowd talking with some of his friends. And I mean, this was at his launch for campaign. One of them told me, boy, you know, he just doesn't, he's just not ready to be president, but he would be great as vice president. And I looked at the guy and I said, you know, do you have any concerns about your friend joining the ticket given what happened to the last vice president? And that was kind of the end of that interview. 
let's talk about South Carolina, right? So as we're recording this, we're about 30 days from South Carolina. We should note that the Nevada caucus and primary, which are two different things, two days apart at the beginning of February, happen before South Carolina. I don't believe Haley's contesting either. So, and it's, you know, despite the fact that, you know, our friend John Ralston always says Nevada matters, we matter. It will from a delegate perspective. It probably won't from an earned media perspective, Tom, because it's in the West and, you know, it's Nevada. So South Carolina. So does Haley stick it out for the next month? You know, does Trump continue the attacks? I mean, I was noodling about this last night, which is if if I'm the Haley high command and I say, okay, we know we're not going to win this. So what are we doing now? I would spend the next 30 days demanding he debate and that he's afraid to debate me and the next 30 days saying, and the reason he doesn't want to debate me is because he's not mentally capable of it. Because here's the thing, you can say all those things and have Trump go crazy, which he would, you know, either go through the South Carolina primary and lose or drop out before and say, I'm with Donald Trump. And on some level, he's going to let you bend the knee. He may never forgive you, but the long-term play, Tom, is that it increasingly damages him with independent voters, with women. I mean, I think this last, you know, really the last 60 days, I think have largely, you know, for the benefit of President Biden, it's hard for Trump to make the case that like Joe Biden's not capable of being president, but I am mentally. I don't think even you guys in the press are going to let him get away with it. And I think also it's because you guys have now seen him up close again. So like, what does the next four weeks look like? That's a great point on the debates pressing him to debate. That's Haley said that last night in her speech. And, you know, for the the inability to actually win this thing, as it seems with her, she did get plaudits actually from one of my Trump people for the timing of that announcement, for getting out there before the margin was set in. So, you know, good on the tacking, relatively speaking. Do you take it to a test in South Carolina and find out that, yeah, really the party just isn't with you, or at least not the primary voters? No, I don't think so. I don't buy into all the talk that she has like a future in 2028. But you know, there is a uh, there's a deeper concern here. You kind of have this overlay or this overlap, this dovetailing of the ideological types of people that are actually into conservatism, the people that are like more into the issue side, and the professional political class, which is about winning. Where you got to get past Trump because, as you know, we were saying earlier, the coalition doesn't work. He doesn't work for keeping a coalition together. 2016 was a novelty. And he had to run against Hillary Clinton for that to work. Let's be clear about that, too. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sleepy Joe Biden just does not enrage people the same way that Clinton and Benghazi did, right or wrong. Well, yeah. And Biden's been around a long time. But, you know, Hillary's mythological for Republicans. And you're absolutely right. That level of rage doesn't exist for Joe Biden. Yes. The Republican Party had that off ramp immediately after January 6th. I mean, it is astounding to me to talk to anybody, frankly, who doesn't, you know, who witnessed that, who doesn't appreciate what that was. But of course, as we've said earlier, not everybody lives in Washington. So. Do you think Haley makes it to South Carolina? Do you think she'll actually stick it out for the whole 30 days? I don't know. I don't see that because you got to have some kind of viability for something after this. Um, and I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't buy into the running in 2028. You need a perch for that. 
and being the former UN ambassador from, you know, whatever years ago. I mean, now that could change if the party starts to become a post-Trump party. You know, you remember a lot of people were talking about, you know, reverting back to the pre-Trump days. I don't, it's not going back, it's going through. And if there is that electoral concern about winning, and parties are about winning, I don't, look, if any time was the time to have a third party, this is it. But you don't really see a third party coalescing. No, and as I've said before, so I was watching Steve Kornacki on MSNBC last night, right? And and I think Kornacki's usually a very smart guy. And he's talking about third parties in the context of Ross Perot. I'm like, that's not the same thing, right? Like Ross Perot was a true outsider, you know, and between his ability such as it was back in the day, to communicate a very unique message against both Republicans and Democrats that resonated with a lot of Americans, matched with a true grassroots movement that got him on the ballot, right? His insanity of dropping out and everything else notwithstanding, he got 19% of the popular vote because of that. None of these people get 20% of the popular vote. Any of them who finally get in, right? Like, let's say no labels or, you know, even Bobby Kennedy, like these people get to like, they end up at three, if they even make it the whole way, because, Tom, you've covered this a long time, like until you've run for president, you've never run for president. And it's a really hard job. And it goes all day, every day. And everything you do, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, I even used to call it the American singularity, gets sucked in to the process. Right. And the process will out. And so, like, that's the kind of thing where, like, yeah, I mean, in another world, actually, I think that. If Biden wins and Trump's gone, theoretically, I would I make an argument that maybe 2028 would be the perfect time because now you've got basically a clear field. Whereas now I'm afraid that, you know, a third party, what we've seen anyway, disproportionately takes away from Biden voters. But again, that was a theory I had three months ago. Now we're, you know, this is the other part, too, is like when voters start voting, everything changes. I'm afraid the only poll that matters. Right. Listen, it's all going to come down to turnout, Tom. Yes, very much so. You know, let me, just on, the, on the, the political science part of this, because I feel like we forget this. I was listening to a great podcast with Andrew Sullivan interviewed Jeff Greenfield. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jeff Greenfield's great. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Takes me right back to grad school. And they're talking about um, critical dynamics here. And it reminded me, I'm sorry, my ADD kicks in periodically, especially on the campaign trail. It reminded me a lot of uh, something my friend from Indiana, Mike Murphy, call him Indiana Mike Murphy. He's not the famous- uh, Not L.A. Mike Murphy, right. No, sir. No. <laughs> he wrote about, we were looking at this, this split inside the Republican Party, and he's an amateur historian, and he noted that, you know, this is how the Republican Party was created. Because when the Whigs fell apart, it was a split between uh, the nativists and you know, what eventually became the know-nothings and what eventually became the, the Republicans. And there wasn't a third party that just morphed into a new party and that the know-nothings and the former Whigs became non-viable and died off. I kind of wonder if that's the same thing here because, I mean, this is a split inside the Republican Party that does not – it's not mending. And they're not coming together or at least not now. I mean, that could change. I don't see the court cases doing that. Court cases only energize the base. I don't know what happens here. I mean, this is I've had some serious talks about like whether this is the actual end of the the Republican Party. You might keep the name, but I don't know. It feels very epochal. I think that's totally fair. And remember, I mean, 
the last major party to succeed is the Republican Party, which was founded in 1854. Right. <laughs> yes. um, but of course, in that time, not to get too far down the political science rabbit hole. Also, like the two parties go out of their way to make sure that competition is very difficult. Right. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different dynamics. I mean, as someone who tried to start a third party, you know, years ago, Tom, the one thing I've always said is like you see the, you know, Andrew Yang and no labels and like the fundamental mistake they make is one that they think they could take a little bit from the left and a little bit from the right and create this sort of bowl of vanilla ice cream that everybody will want a bite of when the truth is it's vanilla ice cream. And like, you know that these people don't believe in anything because it's a bunch of elites in Washington, DC and New York <laughs> trying to decode how they can do this. And also they're afraid of anybody disliking them. Right. As opposed to saying, how do I get to 37? Right. How do I get to 37% of voters saying, in a three-way race, they'd take my guy or my gal from a party they've never heard of. And the other 63% might not like me. Who cares? I don't need them now. I'll get more of them if I win. And again, they don't believe in anything. There's no underpinning of, again, to get really nerdy, there's no philosophical underpinning. There's no worldview that says, like, why do I believe that I can gather this group of people in a coalition? Because frankly, I think that's, you know, to start to wrap up here, because I've taken too much of your time, is the Republican Party isn't really a coalition anymore. It's a bunch of old white people. That's not a coalition. That's a monolith. And, you know, the thing that Trump has to worry about electorally is that guys like me are just going to take our hammer and chisel and just try and chip away at that monolith. And we don't have to chip away at very much of it because they can't afford to lose any of it. And I think that's to me. You know, and just to get your parting thought in the last two elections, the Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary last night, what it said to me was the monolith has cracks in it, right? Will they all break off in huge chunks? No, but it's cracked. And Donald Trump is not a guy who carries around super glue. He's a guy who carries around a hammer. Yeah. When I was writing about this last night for 24 site, you look at the antipathy and whether voters will show up. And this is one of the questions I was asking voters you know, as they were leaving. Will you show up in November? And that's the fundamental question here. You know? And it's so, Ed, the margins are so tight. And you know, another critical dynamic I think we're going to have going forward, and I suspect this, this, there's some tactical, I mean, Mayor Trump is inherently a tactical genius in the moment, is keeping Haley around as a smokescreen to keep things off of him. Because once it becomes, and this is what the Democrats have said, what Joe Biden's people have been saying for months now, is that they want it to be a referendum on Trump. And when Nikki Haley's gone, it's a referendum on Trump. And we are reliving, you know, 2015 to 2021 when he was in the spotlight all the time. And there's a lot of this country, I, I, you know, I don't know that, like, you know, you put a woman on the ticket as, you know, Chavanka always wanted to do. I don't know that that changes anything because it's Trump and it's a referendum on him. And historically, have people really voted for vice presidents? Not typically the way it works. I mean, no matter what anybody says. All right, Tom, before I let you go, tell us about 24 Sight and where everybody can find your work. So 24 Sight, S-I-G-H-T, like Foresight, is I'm writing this over at Substack. It's my new publication. I am uh, on the trail writing all the same stuff I was writing before. Please subscribe. Help me out. I do chats routinely. If you got questions, hit me up. And, uh, you know, writing it the same way I've always been writing it, AP style, uh, just out there. And 
I ran into Eric Trump yesterday. I, you know, I'm going to take a victory lap here, okay? I, I didn't have access to the press logistics for this stuff. I just kind of looked at the map and I was like, Nashua. I bet there's a lot of Trumpers down there. Let's go to Nashua. Boom. Right into Eric Trump. So please sign up. Hit me up. You can find me on X, on Threads, uh, Gmail, on Substack. Yeah, let me know what y'all looking at. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter or whatever we're calling it now and TikTok at Reed Galen. Threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack at The Homefront. Tom LoBianco, thanks for joining me. I hope you'll come back. Heck yeah. Thanks. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.